Hello, everyone, and welcome to Indisputable with Dr. Rashad Ritchie. I'm Sharon Reed, in for the good doctor today, and our special guest co-host is back. She is here, Benny Carollo, bleep, blomp, Ben, breakdown contributor, and just one of my favorite people. And uh, we really need you today because we have, I think, an eclectic mix of stories um, and perhaps a range of emotions, Benny. Okay, so you're going to help us um, go through each one and give your extraordinary commentary. We'll begin with Emmett Till's accuser, Carolyn Bryant. She's passed away. This woman who created so much trauma and controversy, really for America, but beginning with the Till family. Carolyn Bryant Dunham, 88 years old, the white woman whose accusation resulted in the 1955 lynching of the black teenager Emmett Till in Mississippi has died. According to a fact of life letter from the coroner's office, Dunham's role in the brutal murder of Till was reconsidered by a grand jury as recently as last year. Malik Shabazz with Black Lawyers for Justice said in a statement that Dunham's legacy, quote, will be one of dishonesty and injustice. The statement goes on. Carolyn Bryant's death brings a conclusion to a painful chapter for the Emmett Till family and for black people in America. The tragic part about Bryant's death was that she was never held accountable for her role in the death of young Emmett Till, who is the martyr for the civil rights movement. That from Black Lawyers for Justice, Malik Shabazz. August 1955, 14-year-old Emmett was beaten and shot to death after he allegedly whistled at Bryant, now Dunham. In Money, later, her husband, Roy Bryant, J.W. Malam, took Emmett from his bed and ordered him into the back of a pickup truck and beat him before shooting him in the head and tossing his body into the river. They were both acquitted of murder by an old white jury following a trial in which Carolyn Bryant testified that Emmett grabbed and verbally threatened her. Milliam, who died in 1980, and Bryant, who died in 1994, admitted to the killing in a 1956 interview with Look Magazine. That from CNN, the reporting. In 2007, a Mississippi grand jury declined to indict Dunham on any charges. She testified in 1955 that Emmett grabbed her hand and waist and propositioned her, saying, he had been, quote, with white women before. But years later, when Professor Timothy Tyson raised that trial testimony in 2008 interview with Dunham, he claimed she told him, quote, that part's not true. The interview was included in Tyson's book, The Blood of Emmett Till. So, Benny, <laughs> the end of this painful chapter, the attorney said, What's so difficult here, I can't imagine being in the family shoes all these years later. We've we've seen the footage, we've seen and heard the disgustingness of the time, but that she was never held to account. It just seems like it's the wound will never close because of that. Yeah, unfortunately, I mean, there's so many layers to this, right? Because we need to understand this person is somebody who was recently very much alive and only recently died. And that should really sit in our minds about how recent 
all of this history is, that it's not really history so much as it is living memory for so many people. And then you have the people who are the children and grandchildren of those folks, right? Where fundamentally, you have people who were raised by the people that would participate in like lynch mobs, right? You have people uh, who are raised by the people that would like organize sundown towns, right? That very much shapes our culture. That shapes our reality today. It fundamentally is shaping policy today. And when you look at the folks that are actually elected into office, you realize that the people elected in office are disproportionately older, which means they're very much closer to that history. And so it's not really terribly surprising that a lot of these people haven't been held to account because fundamentally, um, you know, them and their children are very much in power still in the United States, unfortunately. And so the problem of all white juries is something that still very much exists to this very day. Uh, just take a look at states like Mississippi and Tennessee, and you'll see that like something around 10% of their voting age population is denied the right to vote due to prior felony voting laws. And if you break down why, like how, who is being disenfranchised by those laws, you see the very clear racial bias that exists within our criminal justice system. And so, like, unfortunately, this is just an ever-present reality that many like, try to pretend is just ancient history, something that just belongs in textbooks. But the reason why Republicans don't want people to learn about stuff like this in schools is because either their parents participated in it, their grandparents participated in it, wow. or maybe they themselves are old enough to have participated in it. Uh, because, uh, like, fundamentally, this history is not as ancient as we would like to think. I think you're exactly right. And I think uh, let's just stay with that for a moment, because I, I find myself considering first the all white jury from the 50s, right, that did the racist thing, the painful, callous thing. But then I find myself looking, as you discussed, recent history, recent grand juries who wouldn't hold this person accountable. And to me, it moved beyond that. There seems to be this outpouring, this uh, insulation placed around her was in her community to protect her and not recognize the pain of the Till family and the rest of us. What do yeah. you think about that? It's just this protection to the end. And yes, she became and grew and was permitted and afforded the opportunity to grow into a senior citizen. Right? Yeah, I mean, not everybody was. So, there's like a couple layers to this. There's like the personal layers to this that exist and then the societal layers and both of them kind of like blend with each other to a certain degree. Um, look, I, I think there's a real argument to be made that a lot of Gen Xers really love holding on to their bigotry because they see inheritances from baby boomers and they don't want to they don't want to do anything about those inheritances, right? They don't want to risk those inheritances by calling out their baby boomer parents, right? When you have a bunch of people that are in similar situations like that, especially because it's going to be disproportionately wealthy people who are worried about inheritances, well, then all of a sudden you have this sort of popular culture of like, oh, well, they're a product of their time or, oh, well, you know, we shouldn't really, you know, we should look and see who they are. You know, we, we are they are they really like this in their heart? I mean, I saw somebody the other day like put out a tweet that was asking like, oh, is Tucker Carlson really a white supremacist deep in his heart or is he just doing it for the money? Like it doesn't matter. 
Like, it doesn't matter. Like, you, you keep just bending over backwards doing these mental gymnastics to try and figure out what are these people actually thinking, but their actions speak for themselves. And it's just, I think this fear of offending people who are both in positions of power and potentially are in control of, like, an inheritance, right? And, like, when you go down to, like, Gen Z folks and millennials, a lot of a lot of Gen Z and millennials have sort of accepted the reality that inheritance is, is not really on the board, right? It's not on the table because we sort of know how the economy is going and are more willing to call people out uh, on stuff like this, even with family members, which is why you'll see all of these articles talking about like, oh, kids these days are so disrespectful. And, you know, our family is torn apart because, you know, they keep telling grandpa that he's transphobic or something like that. Um, and so, like, I mean, fundamentally, there's a lot of like personal layers to this and like sociocultural layers that sort of tie into each other about why there's so much hesitance to actually speak out against the sort of worst offenders on top of just the baseline white supremacist thinking that is like embedded into people's brain by growing up in the culture that dominates the United States. It's so tricky and it's just a mess. I will say this. I won't get any money, okay? I was a torturous, big mouth child. My parents of a certain generation, I challenged them on everything, everything, anything they said. And so, yeah, I won't get any money, but I exercised free speech in the home and I was permitted, I guess, to get away with that. We'll see. We'll move on because this story is just eye-popping. I don't know where you think to do things like this. Indiana educators force a seven-year-old to eat his own vomit. Sarah Seymour, Deborah Knipe. Here they are, the two educators responsible for making a child eat his own vomit while others watched. Authorities said the video showed the student Seated at a table in the cafeteria, the boy was eating his lunch and then stood up, appearing to gag on his food. Seymour, life skills teacher, appeared to tell him to sit down, police said. Seymour allegedly told the child that if he vomited, he would be required to eat what he threw up. Again, according to police. Taylor, a life skills teacher, was present, gave the boy a tray, the release says. Then... Police said the child vomited on the tray and the table. Knipe, a life skills instructional aide, allegedly handed the boy a spoon. Both Seymour and Knipe stood at each side of the child while he was forced to use the spoon to eat the vomit and then clean up the rest with paper towels, police said. Kristen Mitchell, Megan King were present, witnessed the incident. Seymour and Knipe. Arrested Wednesday, released the same day. The termination process for them has already begun. The reporting from NBC News. Brownsburg police secured the video by warrant April 12th. The abuse which occurred in February at Brown Elementary depicted here with the superintendent, Jim Snap. BCSC superintendent Jim Snap said, quote, as educators protecting the safety and welfare of our students is at the core of who we are. We are deeply saddened by the actions of these staff members and will work in conjunction with our local law enforcement as they move forward with possible criminal charges. And here are the charges. Sarah Seymour, age 27, Deborah Knipe, 63, Julie Taylor, 48, 
Kristen Mitchell, 38, and Megan King, 24, were all charged with misdemeanor failure to report. Brownsburg police said Wednesday on Facebook, Seymour and Knight were also charged with felony neglect of a dependent. NBC News again. The abuse has amassed enormous criticism, much of which deems that not enough has been done to rectify the incident. And there you see just some of it. My wife taught special needs students for 30 years. It takes a certain temperament to perform the necessary task. I don't think I could have done it. Apparently these people couldn't either. Too bad they didn't realize that and resign before they hurt young people. In what world would any school be allowed to treat a child this way? Shouldn't be just staff punishment, but honestly, the school as a whole should be investigated. I'm sure this isn't the only incident. They just happen to get caught this time. Close this school. I don't care what they say the actions in line with. Shut this school down. This wasn't one event. Meanwhile, Brown Elementary maintains a much different image of their care on their official website. Looks darling, doesn't it? Keeping education a priority by promoting health and encouraging physical and social wellness in a safe and nurturing environment for students and families, anything but. And it's, it's again, and, and I tend to do this and it's, it's probably not fair. It's Monday morning quarterbacking, I think they call it. But when I look at the superintendent statement, I mean, we're talking about an incident that happened in February a warrant sworn out in April, the delay, all these people involved, that tells me something, Benny, about the culture here. Because if I was just a volunteer aide, the whole thing would have been exposed instantly. They would have thrown me out of the school, but that's okay. And so I think that the comments from some in the community online saying close the school and there's what else is there, aren't they appropriate and fair? Yeah, I mean, seriously, like, if you're at the point where something like this is happening and every adult in the room isn't, like, freaking out about it, like, because, like, like this is so nasty. This is disgusting. This is, like, absolutely disgusting on, like, two layers. First, it's just, like, immediately, like, physically disgusting. But then there's, like, how, like, monstrous of a person do you have to be psychologically to not only force somebody to eat their own vomit, but specifically a child, right? Like, I don't know if you know this about kids. Kids throw up, right? If, if if you're watching and you don't know, kids throw up a lot. It's like a whole entire thing, you know? Um, and you should, if you're an adult, understand that, recognize that, have empathy for them, right? You know, they're just kids. Uh, and, but instead, you have a bunch of people who have this mentality of like, oh no, they're just kids, right? So it's either they're just kids, we should have empathy for them, or they're just kids, so they are of no consequence to me. Those are the two ways to go about thinking. It is the question of, do you think children are people that you have responsibility for, that they're their own individuals who just need a little bit more care and guidance in life, or are children property, right? Yeah. They're just you know, like without agency and undeserving of like basic decency and respect. And unfortunately, it seems that not only did these teachers fall under that camp, but the administrative uh, staff uh, seemed to fall under that camp as well. Because, I mean, how did this not immediately lead to like, honestly, like calling the police right there? Like, hey, oh, wow, you forced the kid to eat their own vomit. We are going to just have you arrested right here, right now on the spot. Uh, 
That's not even something where you're like, oh, we should have investigation or we should figure out where to talk to the parents. Like, no, that's a pretty clear cut case. You don't really need to have any investigation at that point. It's just, you know, getting the ball rolling so that the children feel safe. Because if there's that delay in timeline, then you have the children, right? Not only the individual child, but all the other children in school that have to sit there and wonder and question whether or not all the adults are going to support them and protect them from things like this. Yeah. I think, once again, you are on to all of it. These children were not afforded human rights. Props in adult lives. If you don't want to clean up, throw up, or I didn't hear anybody say they got the child medical attention. Maybe it was just a gag. Maybe something else was going on. I didn't see any comfort aid given here. Props in adult lives. Let me collect a check. And I really, they you're right. They have the video. They have the footage. And if we could put up the mugshot, I guarantee this is not the face that these two, look how vulnerable they look, okay? The one screen left making, I don't know, making pouty lips or something, but they seem so vulnerable. And I'm certain that's not how they stood on either side of this child. That's not the look that was on their faces. Couldn't be. I I just find it disgusting and you're right. When we stop looking at kids as property and props and the fact that the kids weren't up in arms and they weren't even afraid, apparently, that this child was going to tell. Who are you going to tell? It's like a prisoner. I just find it um, mind boggling that we can't rid some of this out with a system of checks and balances that is ongoing. I'll give you the last word on this one, Benny. Yeah, I just think this speaks to like a desperate need in our society to stop collectively thinking of children as things that are just property, right? And to start recognizing that that children have agency. They are their own people. And sure, they need extra care in life, but we cannot just treat children as though they're the unquestioned property of parents, right? I mean, there's still tons of people that will get outraged at the idea that like, hey, you shouldn't hit your kids. And they will talk like it's some sort of violation of their rights as parents, right? When people suggest that you don't hit your kids, right? And so collectively as a society, we just need more respect for children as human beings. I agree more. My daughter, I sometimes don't like the way she speaks to me. And I, I do demand that you have to be respectful. Can we have respectful conversation? But I am honored that she feels she can represent her views, even when she's frustrated. I'm just one parent. Uh, The cult death toll rises in this Kenyan starvation case. Now 98 are dead. Widespread, the death among followers a Kenyan cult who believed they would go to heaven if they starved themselves has been steadily increasing over the past few days with the death toll climbing up to a staggering 98. Authorities still carrying out exhumations of exhumations of mass graves found in an 800 acre area in eastern Kenya where self-proclaimed Good News International Church was based. Pastor Paul McKenzie and Thang is alleged to have told followers of the Good News International Church to not eat in order to meet Jesus. He was arrested in April, April 14th, following a tip-off. 
Kenyan media have reported that he is currently refusing food and water. According to police, another cult members are in custody as well. Okay, there's the pastor. Most of the dead were recovered from shallow graves, while a small number were found alive, emaciated, but later died. Kenya's Office of the Director of Public Prosecution said preliminary investigations showed that the suspects might have committed crimes, including murder, radicalization, and threatening public safety. Interior Minister Kuthir Kindiki calling for the group's leader to spend the rest of his life in prison in a statement he says, we pray that God will help them to go through the trauma to help them recover and tell the story of how one time a fellow Kenyan, a fellow human decided to hurt so many people heartlessly hiding under the holy scriptures, he continues. We do not expect that Mr. McKenzie will get out of jail for the rest of his life, said Kandiki adding that anyone who assisted him by digging graves or disposing of bodies should also face the harshest penalties under the law. Exhumation sites were cordoned off. Teams of men wearing white protective overalls, masks, could be seen carrying away corpses wrapped in blue and white body bags. Kandiki said three more people had been rescued alive, bringing the total number of survivors found so far to 34. The death toll could rise further. According to the Kenyan Red Cross, more than 200 people have been reported missing to a counseling desk set up at the hospital. Colt's leader has been arrested twice before, in 2019 and earlier this year, both in the connections to the deaths of children. He was released on bond. Those cases are still proceeding through the court. The carnage here, the death toll, and the fact that 98 people are dead, meaning this, you don't starve overnight. This went on for some time. How does that happen? Different place, different culture. But how does that happen, Benny? Yeah, I mean, one of the heartbreaking things about like, I mean, cults in general, right? Obviously I can't speak to this one necessarily in particular, but one of the things that generally cults do is they will target people who are marginalized in some way. They will target people who are vulnerable in some way. Uh, and they will like manipulate them. They will, they will manipulate them. And very often they give like false promises of community and stuff like that. This one is, you know, giving like the classic like false promise of like, oh, if you do such and such, then you're definitely going to go heaven or whatever. Um, but it's really heartbreaking because they take people that are already in difficult spots, right? They promise them, you know, better things in one way, shape or form, and then actively make their life worse and just manipulate them and exploit them. And it's just really, really heartbreaking to see this because that is ten, like that is usually why things like this can go on for so long, because it is people who are already at the margins of society. It is already people who are in vulnerable, vulnerable positions, who are alone in some way, um and uh no it's just kind of like terrifying like and and heartbreaking to see this especially when you have like such an incredibly massive death toll from something that is it takes so long yeah and it makes me think of other cults that we've unfortunately uncovered read about over the years and you're so right about how desperate someone must be for hope for guidance um looking looking to someone who's just making it up full of terror in this case and evil 
and yet blindly following and suffering through it all. Extraordinary. And, you know, it's a case that we have to follow and see what happens next. But I do wonder about, you know, it's at 200 people reported missing at the Red Cross Counseling Center. I do wonder about the human connection. And some of it might just be distance and location. And, you know, maybe you don't realize for a while that your cousin, your brother, someone's not not responding in a timely fashion. But it does make me wonder about that human connection that's lost, where you are over here with a group and you were at one point available to everyone and then suddenly you're not. And in that insulation, because that's really what abuse is, you insulate someone from anything that they can rely on except for you. And I wonder about that. This is Indisputable. I'm Sharon Reed and for Dr. Rashad Ritchie, Benny Carollo. She is our special guest host today. Much more Indisputable when we come right back. It's that time. Wish a Karen would. You want to call the police on them for having a barbecue on a Sunday? You're going to feel free. Back off. I'm going to tell them there's an African American man threatening my life. You can't throw hands on me. And you just threw our pole in the water. I'm going to grab my pole. You can take a picture. I've been filming the whole thing. I'm going to grab my pole before I leave. Oh, I'm not? Please tell me you got that on film. That you just pushed me. Yeah, no, I got it on film. I got it on film. my face. Hey, hey, don't get mad when Shut I when face. I go walking through on the board, when I go stomping through all that. How? <laughs> you're on private property, you little We understand twerp. that, I'm sorry. Then get your I'll ass leave. off of here. I said I was leaving. You're you're you have like to it. grab our pool now. You yeah. have to get yeah. out of yeah. here. Yeah. I gotta grab my pool I don't now. care what property. you do. <laughs> oh, wait, I'm we can stay? Get off our property. Wait, wait, we can stay? It's my water. Get out of here. Before you see the footage and this big mouth Karen. Why so ugly? Why are you being so ugly here? Okay. This is a fishing pole. Just trying to cast a line, Benny. Why so ugly? The water's mine. The land is mine. The bush is mine. Mine, mine, mine. Why? Yeah, it's really mind-numbing, like, especially because, like, look, I'm just going to make a wild guess. Like, if I had to have a guess, I would say, like, her Facebook feed, I could pretty much guarantee you is filled with, like, a bunch of, like, eat, pray, love. Like, oh, just trying to spread peace and joy everywhere. I love the yeah. wilderness. I love the outdoors. Yep. Right? Because, like, it's just so wild, though, that, like, for whatever reason, like, I think a lot of baby boomers collectively in the United States have decided to just actively mm -hmm. hate young people across the board. They see young people and they're like, no, this is terrible. It's like the next evolution of get off my lawn where just go back a couple weeks ago and you literally have like a bunch of young people that were literally gunned down just for accidentally showing up in the wrong place. This is a very similar situation. I could totally see somebody being like, oh, this looks like a decent fishing spot, not realizing it's private property. A normal person would just respond by just saying like, hey, 
this is actually private property and I'd appreciate it if you leave. But instead of doing the normal thing, they like lash out as though it's some sort of like personal affront to them. Like it's the end of the world and they start freaking out. And it's just is this needless anger that is simmering sort of across the country, especially with like the older generation in the United States. And honestly, I really have to blame a lot of the media for like capitalizing on this anger and trying to constantly stir up like a lot of paranoia and fear and just hatred so that people are always on edge. And that if you see something, somebody doing something that is such a small, teeny tiny thing, there's so many people that will lash out as though it's like the end of the world. When at the end of the day, what really happened? A bunch mm -hmm. of young people showed up to go fishing at a spot that they thought was public, but wasn't public. And you could have just asked them to leave. But instead, yeah. you freaked out. <laughs> yeah. Or you could have just said, if you catch something and you, you don't want to throw it back, I'm, I'm happy to make you lunch. Okay? That's what you could have done. But you're exactly right. And I don't want to just cast a wide net and say it's people of a certain generation. But sometimes people of a certain level, age, means when they're rich enough, they buy private beaches and get mad at people who just, the kids who just want to dip their feet in the sand and didn't know, oh, now you're on the beach. It's bizarre, but you're right. Pitch a lemonade stand and get your head bitten off or worse, or worse. She's something else. Karens don't disappoint. Popeyes, a worker trashes the workplace over unpaid wages. It's just chicken. This happened. Popeye's employee and her coworker went viral on TikTok after she posted a video of him destroying their Chicago, Illinois store. A watch. This is what happens when you don't get paid for a month. At least he got his money. This is apparently what happens when you don't pay people for a month. TikTok users were quick to offer thoughts on whoever tore up the chicken spot, the rampage. Many divided as well. Here's some of the comments. Who sticks around for a month without pay? Question one person. First missed check and I'm gone. And of course, he's a destructive animal. Now he's got to pay for the damages, commented another who branded the situation crazy. Plenty of viewers seem to agree that the frenzy was ultimately not worth the satisfaction. I understand his anger, but now he definitely isn't getting paid, said a third. This is a corporation. He could have sued, got a nice settlement check. It's from a Daily Mail. I don't know if you could just sue and get a settlement check, okay? Unless you're a huge company suing another company that lies all the time, then maybe you get a settlement. But everyday Americans, perhaps this is a metaphor for more Benny, fed up, fed up. Yeah, most definitely. First and foremost, the, like the people in the comments who were like, oh, he could have just sued. Who can afford a lawyer? Can you afford you. a lawyer? No. I can't afford a lawyer. Hmm. Most people can't afford a lawyer. That's silly. That's ridiculous. That's a nonsense talking point. On top of that, they're like, oh, 
hasn't got paid for a month. I would have just left and got a different job. Do you know how long it takes to get your first paycheck at any job? So like stop fooling yourself, right? Stop lying to yourself about how you would magically not be victimized by this brutal capitalist system that wants to rob working class people because you're a liar. You're telling yourself fantasies in order to cope with the reality that as workers, our positions is very, very unstable and entirely predicated on how much our employers are willing to do the right thing because they think it is profitable or necessary for them to do it. So then on the front of like this, I'm not gonna like advocate that people do this or anything, but just evaluate from a philosophical standpoint, morally, let's look at the situation. Because at the end of the day, what is really the stakes here? The stakes for the employee is their entire life their ability to pay for their food, their shelter, to survive. That is what is at stake for them when employers don't pay their wages. What is at stake for the company? Profits. That's it, just profits, just extra money, extra money to have for, for fun. And so one of these things gets prosecuted under our system. One of these things will get the book thrown at you, right? What the employee did, which threatens profits, versus what the employer does, which is threaten your entire livelihood. Our system punishes the most vulnerable. It takes people who are in vulnerable positions who potentially have their entire livelihood at risk. They could potentially find themselves on the streets because their employer didn't think it was important to pay them enough. And like that is what doesn't get punished by our system, right? The employers not paying their workers. But what does get punished under our system is when employees do things like this. So purely from a moral and philosophical standpoint, there's an extreme imbalance of power. There's an extreme imbalance of consequence. And there's an extreme imbalance of how these things affect different people. Because $3,000 to a worker is very different than $3,000 to a business that it's just going to eat into their profits. Perfect sense again. Okay, they can employ underage they can play children, eh, slap on the wrist, because they're all in this room, yet they've conditioned people who are in the same predicament to go online and say, nah, you could have just left to defend the giant. Well, much more indisputable when we come right back. Once you're on the Supreme Court of the United States, you're only gonna leave by death. This guy is here to stay, apparently, but there were serious omissions we're learning in the Senate probe clearing Justice Kavanaugh when he was then a nominee. 2018 Senate investigation into Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh that found there was no verifiable evidence supporting sexual assault allegations against him has serious omissions, according to Kavanaugh's Yale classmate, Deborah Ramirez with both the allegations and the government's investigation into them, continuing to draw scrutiny five years later. Ramirez was one of the multiple accusers whose claims were investigated in the Senate report. She alleges Kavanaugh drunkenly exposed himself to her at a college party, thrusting his in her face, which caused her to touch it without her consent when pushing him away. The report concluded there was no verifiable evidence to support those claims. The committee cited an interview with a classmate at Yale who said there was another student who was known for exposing himself publicly and attached a photo of that student doing so. 
suggesting Ramirez confused Kavanaugh with that other student and saying if anyone else besides them had engaged in similar lewd behavior, would have been widely known and discussed around campus. Well, that claim can be found in Forbes and was sent by Colorado-based attorney Joseph C. Smith Jr., the president of the conservative Federalist Society that supported Kavanaugh's appointment. The alleged student who Smith says Ramirez confused for Kavanaugh, Jack Maxey, was a high schooler and didn't even attend Yale at the time, Maxey says. I was not at Yale when Ramirez's alleged incident occurred, Maxey told The Guardian. These people can say what they want and there are no consequences ever. Kavanaugh has repeatedly denied the allegations of sexual misconduct against him. And the Senate report notes that when asked about Ramirez's allegations, Kavanaugh responded that didn't happen. Kavanaugh was nominated to the Supreme Court by former President Donald Trump in 2018. His confirmation drew widespread controversy after Christine Blasey Ford accused him of sexually assaulting her at a party in 1982. The now justice was ultimately confirmed to the bench despite the allegations. But government investigations of the accusations against the justice have continued to draw scrutiny even after he took the bench. Should we just let it go, Benny? It's been five years, another divisive process for the country as 45 intended when he chose this nominee, rushed this nominee through. Should we just forget it or are you of the mind that when you do something like this, the people who were assaulted, those who were the victims have a right to always bring it up and perhaps the rest of us too? No, most definitely. I mean, like, because the, like this is so central to the Republican Party across the board. Like, let's just be clear, right? Brett Kavanaugh, to me, is not a standout. And this is what it's so, so relevant that there are these accusations out there because the truth of the matter is it speaks to the larger mentality the Republican Party have not only towards women, but also marginalized people in general, that fundamentally they view it as the privilege of cisgender heterosexual white men, okay, to violate any boundary they feel like when it comes to marginalized people around them, to victimize marginalized people around them, and then paint themselves as the main character victim wow. Whenever anything, you know, looking even somewhat like consequences comes in their direction. That is exactly why Republicans love Brett Kavanaugh at the Supreme Court, because with these allegations to them, it represents that Brett Kavanaugh is on their side. They're in the club of, you know, <laughs> they're in the club of denying allegations, right? And so fundamentally, uh, this speaks to the entire mentality that these Republicans have. And so it's no coincidence that you have Republicans going after no-fault divorce, right, alongside things like this, pushing people like Brett Kavanaugh. And this is part of really like this larger like right-wing culture because there are plenty of people who have not been accused of sexual assault that would make far better Supreme Court justices. And then as far as him being a Supreme Court justice and already being seated, Look, I'm a, I'm, I'm a radical when it comes to the Supreme Court. I actually think that everybody in the Supreme Court should be replaced and that fundamentally we need an entirely different system for Supreme Court justices because it is undemocratic. And honestly, it was designed to be undemocratic. It was designed by the founding fathers, quite literally, the Supreme Court, 
was designed to be the emergency brake on democracy, that if things in Congress and the Senate changed too fast, if working class people were gaining too much power in the electoral sphere, that there would be these lifelong representatives that would always be able to be the emergency brake on democracy to protect the interests of the wealthy uh, at the expense of the workers, no matter what people actually vote for. That is always what it very explicitly has been intended to do, all the way back to when they tried to pass the first antitrust laws and the Supreme Court turned those on their head to use them against unions, but not corporations. Okay, And so Brett Kavanaugh being on the Supreme Court with allegations like this is very much in alignment with the white supremacist patriarchal system that was established uh, with the United States Constitution. And he's part of that club that says, you better not question me either, as we saw when Amy Klobuchar, Senator Klobuchar did, and he was foaming at the mouth posing it back to her. How dare you even question me? How dare you? Spot on. Conservatives are coming for no fault divorce. Whatever happened to staying out of people's private lives? New report from Media Matters for America shows a rising trend of right wing influencers and Republican leaders and politicians, including US Senate candidate J.D. Vance advocating for the end of no-fault divorce, a policy that allows people to end a marriage without being required to prove wrongdoing by their partner, including adultery, abuse, or desertion. If you're not happy, you can leave. Background on no-fault divorce. No-fault divorce, which was first enacted in California in 1969, has always been a feminist issue. It's allowed domestic abuse victims to leave a bad marriage without barriers. It certainly empowers women, all people to escape legally binding situations with someone they don't love. One would think no fault divorce is a no brainer, a completely non-controversial issue decided half a century ago. But aha, efforts by the GOP to change it. Justice Clarence Thomas is Concurring opinion in the Supreme Court's decision overturning Roe very clearly opened the door for further rights, particularly around marriage, to be reversed. And already the Texas Republican Party includes a proposal to rescind unilateral no-fault divorce laws and support covenant marriage. And to pass legislation extending the period of time in which a divorce may occur to six months after the date of filing for divorce in its 2022 party platform. J.D. Vance said of the subject of divorce, this is one of the great tricks that I think the sexual revolution pulled on the American populace, which is the idea that like, well, okay, these marriages were fundamentally, you know, they were maybe even violent, but certainly they were unhappy. And so getting rid of them and making it easier for people to shift spouses like they change their underwear, that's going to make people happier in the long run. That's porting out of Jezebel. In addition to politicians, conservative influencers, Tim Poole, Steve Crowder, Matt Walsh, have all been critical of no-fault divorce. According to Jezebel, Poole claimed that no-fault divorce laws to blame for the rise of prenuptial agreements. Crowder called it sexist toward men, and Walsh called for its abolishment. And speaking of Crowder, Candace Owens leaked a video, Crowder allegedly being verbally abusive to, abusive rather, to his 
estranged wife. In the video, the woman, eight months pregnant, Owens calls Crowder a monster for his behavior. In an earlier story, the abuse of a child who was forced to eat his own vomit at school, Benny, you you referenced children as property. And as I looked through some of the research here and went over some of that, it, in my mind, made me feel like these conservative voices were approaching the spouse as property here. You can't leave me because you said you wouldn't, and now you're you're not allowed to, okay? It's not like a no refund policy at the store. Okay, you're not gonna get your money back, okay? But you can divest another way. But we're talking about human beings here. What say you? Yeah, no, most definitely. So there's, there's two directions that I guess I'll go here. And I guess I'll go with a lighthearted, funny one before I get in the serious one, which is like, let's imagine hypothetically that these right wingers who already are revealing themselves to be like the most unlovable like people like that exist on the face of this earth, if they really did get rid of no fault divorce, you really think that's going to help your chances in the dating game? You think more people <laughs> will be more willing to get married to you yeah. if they know they'd be trapped forever? <laughs> like mm-hmm. you're undermining your own cause here. You're like, something. Like, So like just to get that aside, but then there's like the serious layer to this, which fundamentally this ties into every other thing that the Republicans are pushing right now. Like all of it is really connected together because fundamentally there is a core white supremacist narrative that drives the United States today and especially is like persistent within right wing spaces. It's like the 1950s like uh, nuclear family type narrative where you have this like white man that's married to a white woman and they have these children and their nuclear family in the suburbs and he's the king of his own castle. And that very racist picture of American suburban life is what Republicans have based their entire ideology off of. And they try to justify like the violent tendencies of these men as, as, as justified because they're protecting women and children. And that's why they get to have women and children as property. But who are they protecting women and children from? And obviously it becomes, you know, queer folks, black and brown folks, you know, marginalized people just across the board. And then you have the, the core basis for white supremacy in the United States in its in its sort of modern conception is this idea as this cishet man, as the king of his own suburban castle and Ugh. women and children existing as his property and, you know, you know, painting everybody that doesn't fall perfectly under that label as as being some sort of inherent threat to their existence. And so all of this really ties in together and it really ties into the central image of what a lot of people think masculinity is in the United Mm. States. They think it is being the king of your own castle. Mm -hmm. And so these fragile men who have wrapped up their entire ego in this fictitious picture of themselves, this is why they attack feminism, because they don't like the idea of women having autonomy. They want women to be property. They think the whole purpose of getting married is to establish a woman as a baby factory that is your property. And The fact that less and less people are willing to date conservative men nowadays, specifically because 
their mentality is deeply off-putting and puts these men in a position where they think they don't need to go to therapy. They think they don't need to work on themselves. They definitely think that they don't have to do like, you know, basic chores around the house and all of the data backs this up. And so they find themselves struggling in the dating game because <laughs> they have turned themselves into the most yep. unlikable people. Uh, and now they're just going these like violent outbursts demanding that we have uh, demanding that we get rid of no fault divorce. And so like it, it is there's a terrifying personal element to this, though, mm -hmm. because that mentality mm -hmm. is what drives so much domestic abuse. It yeah, is it quite literally what drives so much domestic abuse where they they reject the autonomy of women in their lives and and they feel threatened by it and they feel threatened by it and they lash out violently, unfortunately. And that is, is so common in the United States to a very terrifying degree. It is terrifying. And it's also something you're on to it because they also are prevented from taking a good look at themselves, right? If only. You don't let your son go to a drag show. I, that, I gotta protect him from that. If only I don't let my wife befriend a single friend, go have cocktails, she won't get these crazy ideas. I mean, remember they didn't want the slaves to learn to read. I think we know why. You're so right. They never can take a look at just themselves. Make yourself more attractive, okay? And you may get the kind of loyalty and commitment you perhaps are seeking instead of just this insecure cycle here. Next story, LA police humiliate a youth community leader in an arrest. Derek Cooper is the name, longtime Compton resident community leader, now pursuing legal action against the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department after he was mistakenly detained by deputies. Let's give you the background on this one because it is just horrific. Seems it could have been avoided, it wasn't. Cooper, age 54, said in a press conference Tuesday, he woke up to three LA County Sheriff's deputies standing in his room, shining flashlights in his face, shouting commands on April 18th. In the moment he thought he was going to be arrested for a charge he didn't know about or end up as another victim of police brutality. I said, I'm unarmed, I live alone, please do not shoot me. He said at the press conference, yep, pretty much the state of things, details in the route. Surveillance footage shows Cooper being ordered out of his home while handcuffed behind his back while only wearing a t-shirt and his lower half exposed. He told reporters the officers denied his request to cover himself up. Cooper said he feared that reaching for a towel or pair of pants would mean risking his life while the guns remained pointed at him. I felt like a runaway slave, said Cooper in a press conference. After 20 minutes of sitting in the back of the patrol car, he said he heard the dispatcher come on the radio saying, you guys are at the wrong building, let him go. Soon after the officers apologized and Cooper ran back into his building, he said. Statement from the police. Sheriff's department would not comment on whether the deputies had arrived at the wrong address. It said Compton station is thoroughly investigating the incident. Yada, yada, yada. I added that. Captain Terrence L. Bell runs the Compton Sheriff Station. And that's his, I don't know if you wanna call that a smirk or if those are dimples or something else, but nothing to see here, we're investigating. Like he investigated which place to go to, which building to storm into and arrest a man who had not done anything related to what you're talking about. 
had lived in the community all these years, and here we go. You're to come with us, no pants on. He thought he would die, Benny, if he just reached for a towel to cover himself up. Yeah, and this is like, <laughs> this is the same LA County Sheriff's Department that's mm-hmm. famous from the hashtag Google LASD gangs, right? Like <laughs> this is a, this that same Sheriff's Department. You know, it's so wild how police officers feel like they can get away with so much. Um, because like, there's two layers to this. Either one, they're willfully not caring about like, yeah, are we at the right place? Are we not at the right place? Who really cares? Nobody's gonna hold us accountable. It's not like we're gonna get in trouble, you know, for like wrongfully detaining somebody or like breaking and entering. Because if anybody else randomly broke into your house and held you at gunpoint, that'd be breaking and entering, right? That would be felonious, mm-hmm. right, on its face. But if it's a police officer doing it, then, oh, it's just a, a little oopsie that they did, just a little teeny tiny mistake. Um, or alternatively, it's something that they're just like, yeah, whatever, we're gonna go break into people's houses, right? Like, And it's really hard to tell with police in the United States whether, like, which is the case. Because the truth of the matter is, like, as somebody that lives in Minneapolis, it seems like there's a lot of random justification for mm-hmm. arresting random people Will they say they fit the description when really, uh, what are you doing in the first place? It's just targeted harassment, it seems. Make it up after the fact, that's, that's what we're doing here, okay? Can't even apologize, get out of here. Byron Allen, the media mogul, Speaking out again, he says black audiences are not measured correctly. He said this before, it's apparently something he's gonna continue to talk about. During a recent industry luncheon, media mogul Byron Allen called out the inaccuracies of how black TV viewership is counted. Very frustrated about this and vocal. In between panels of Weather Channel talent and his new lineup of TV judges, Allen revealed that AMG, Allen Media Group, would be joining the search for another TV currency, and that it had cut a deal with the measurement firm VideoAmp to sell during the 2023-24 upfront, starting with the Weather Channel. Nielsen does a horrible job, Allen said, of the measurement firm that has long dominated the sector. It's out of control and it doesn't work. In Allen's suit against Nielsen, he claims, that Nielsen committed fraud when it agreed to provide ratings to Allen's Entertainment Studio Networks, a group of seven niche TV channels that have limited distribution on cable and satellite systems. Audience levels for smaller networks are harder to measure and are more likely to be subject to errors. Stephen Battaglia of the LA Times with the details. Allen's suit lands at a time when New York-based Nielsen has been under assault from its dissatisfied clients who use Nielsen ratings data to set advertising rates. Some media companies such as NBC Universal have begun to use alternative services for audience measurement. The accuracy of the company data drawn from a sample of 40,000 homes equipped to measure viewing habits has been questioned throughout the media industry in recent years as viewers increasingly turn to streaming services for their video content. Nielsen had to admit that it undercounted TV viewing during the pandemic as COVID-19 health protocols kept the company from updating its panel of homes. Company also acknowledged it undercounted 
out of home viewing from September 2021 through January 2022. Media companies say the discrepancies have cost them millions of dollars in ad revenue. Allen has repeatedly spoken out about the problem of fewer ad dollars allocated to black content. And here's what he told a group of media buyers on Wednesday. We have a lot of work to do. There are a lot of folks out there that have made promises and we're going to help them live up to those promises, Allen said. Now's the time to not just promise, it's actually time to do it, increase those allocations. That's important. Lean in on the sponsorships. That's important. Increase the investment. We can't deposit excuses, Allen concluded. There's no bank in the world where you can deposit excuses, pledges, and promises. Hollywood Reporter with the comments there. Expect to hear the media mogul continue to talk about ad dollars in the black space as he's also expressed his intention to make a run at owning BET, Black Entertainment Television. According to the Atlanta Daily World, Allen is in a bidding war for the network with Tyler Perry. So Benny, here's what I love about Byron Allen. He's been saying this kind of thing for years and he's been going after them, okay? Cable giants, he claims may not have won, but they settled, claim, hey, there's discrimination here. The ad dollars, car companies, others, McDonald's, What about us? And you're not being measured correctly by Nielsen, as he alleges, and others have too. That directly correlates to the amount of money that the advertisers give you. Should he shut up or keep going? I think you should definitely keep going, especially because this actually underlies one of the mythologies that people talk about capitalism all the all the time. They say, oh, they don't care about, you know, dollars. They don't care. You know, all, all they care about is dollars. So they don't care about where those dollars are coming from. Right. But here's the thing. Right. It is possible for you to have industry level bias when you have, like, for example, a lot of like white TV executives and producers um, that are producing content that are like directed towards primarily white audiences, right? They have like writing teams and stuff like that. All of these people have their own personal careers and they live in a world where they think everything is a zero sum game. And so they think that if data was to reveal or like they could think, right? That if data was revealed that there's like a larger black audience than they're realizing and people hungry for content that's more specifically directed towards black audiences. Well, then of course people are going to very reasonably want like black content creators, black TV hosts, right? Black writers to be telling the stories that are more reflective uh, and understanding to their perspectives. And well, that would cut into their careers because if they live in this zero sum world, then, then they get nervous about their jobs and stuff. And so you can have this whole industry level bias where you have established people because of like the racist history of the United States, they have established their careers, established their positions and don't wanna feel threatened by new people entering the space. And this is a larger problem that exists across the media in general with any marginalized community, right? Uh, we just had a whole story, I think, in the Oscars about how Asian Americans have been underrepresented. Uh, and the same thing is true for queer folks as well. I couldn't agree more. Byron Allen should keep going. He doesn't have to say another word. He's rich, he has a media empire, and that's what makes what he's doing even better and right. He's right. Dwayne Wade, leaving Florida and the reason to protect 
his trans daughter. Former NBA superstar Dwayne Wade opened up about some of the reasons he decided to move his family out of the Sunshine State of Florida. The current political climate, transgender policies being some of the biggest factors that he says made his family not feel comfortable there anymore. 2020, Wade's 15-year-old daughter, Zaya, came out as transgender. Wade was asked about Florida politicians who stand against LGBTQ policies and how the situation affects families like his own. That's another reason why I don't live in that state, Wade told Nichols in a clip shared with People magazine. A lot of people don't know that I have to make decisions for my family, not just personal individual decisions. Daily News with the reporting here. Former Miami Heat player, age 41, said he does appreciate the tax incentives rather in the state, as well as the fact that Miami-Dade County was temporarily renamed Miami-Wade County in his honor. But the positives don't outweigh the negatives for Wade, who said, my family would not be accepted or feel comfortable there. And so that's one of the reasons why I don't live there. Wade also discussed how he models his fathering style after his own dad, whom he described accepting of all his sons in addition to others in their community when he was growing up. Wade says, I had to educate myself. And yes, I had to get better, a better understanding. And yes, I had to lose some friends along the process, but I never wavered on loving my kids and trying to find space to get the chance to understand them. Rachel Nichols there in her headliners content. I think, Benny, that Dwayne Wade gets a lot of respect. But when it's all said and done, this man coming out of this basketball culture will be cemented in history as a human rights leader and a freedom fighter by example. And I bet he did lose friends who were ignorant and unwilling to learn what he wanted to learn. Yeah, this story is literally so sweet. Like, like y'all don't realize how lucky, like, you know that like only like 20%, only like 20% of trans people have supportive parents, right? Like think about that for a second. Like like 20% of trans people have supportive parents. Imagine if one in five people like had supportive parents in general, just supporting like who you are as a person, just your existence, right? And so for him to be so caring and loving and supportive, even just within the privacy of like, his own home and among his like immediate friends and family members. That is one thing. And that is super significant, especially like saying, hey, I don't think Florida is going to be the safest place for you to live because let's go live somewhere else. Because like even within the larger trans umbrella, trans women are more likely to face like hate crimes and discrimination, all those things. And it's even more exponentially more, you know, hate and discrimination and violence that black trans women face. And so him stepping up to protect his child is like, it's super, super heartwarming and you love to see it. And it is also another step to speak about it publicly where he knows he's going to face like a bunch of backlash from weirdos. He knows he's going to deal with that. But it's also very, very significant because like people love celebrities, people love basketball players and like unironically look up to them as like role models in life. And so having somebody that is such an influential figure so publicly being such a supportive parent to a trans child is, it is is heartwarming. You love to see it. I would like to see more of this. This is this is what we need, especially in this moment. Yeah, in this moment, black community, a black 
father. There's some challenges within our community and some subplots there. And Dwayne Wade has just done enormously for so many out there. I've never seen certain members of the Republican Party look so beautiful. Aren't they beautiful? Drink it in. AI expert brings GOP drag queen portraits to life. Stunning. Stunning. Watch this. Let's make America glam again. I'm the elephant in the room, and I'm not afraid to sparkle. They call it trickle-down fabulousness. I believe in limited government, but unlimited glamour. Don't tread on me unless you're wearing fabulous heels. GOP stands for glamour on point. I'm a fiscal conservative, but I'll never skimp on style. Stars, stripes, and stilettos. Now that's what I call liberty. I'm here to cut taxes and sashay away. God we trust, and in glam we must. I'm here to filibuster with flair, queen. It's incredible, these artists, AI artists. TikToker Obscurious Mind used artificial intelligence to bring to life Instagram portraits of right-wing figures in full drag. In the viral video, you can get a glimpse of Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who I thought never looked better, okay? Former President Donald Trump, former Vice President Mike Pence, among others, in an AI-generated drag show. Marvelous. Portraits originated on the at Publicans Instagram account, which was created by a gay couple who are drag enthusiasts and launched on March 30th. The name of the account is a nod to RuPaul's Drag Race, the most high-profile drag competition in the country. This couple, Benny, did it because they watch laws driven by hate and fear and division be cast throughout the land, hurting people who just want to make a living. It's disgusting. So they turned it into something beautiful. And it is getting a lot of people talking, commenting, and frankly, wanting more. What did you think of the video? Um, okay, this is a lot to pack in into such a short period of time, but I'm actually going to play the centrist here for a second and say that there are a lot of queer people that actually kind of hate stuff like this, specifically because there's a specific segment of like centrist liberals who think that the whole joke is, haha, they're doing drag, right, in a sort of derogatory way, or haha, they're gay in sort of a derogatory way, right? And so 
it is it like it is oh they're being gay in some form or queer in some form as as like this derogatory dig against them uh that a lot of queer people see as like very harmful um there's like a whole like discourse on top of that that does not fit into this segment um uh but like i'll and i will add another layer of like i think this makes them look unreasonably cool right like we, it's <laughs> You're you're giving you're like you're giving them too much coolness, right? They mm -hmm. like it's that you're bringing here, and I think that that is just wrong. They're not cool, like they're not. They would never do anything like this. And so, like I don't know, it's really hard to pack it into short time. But like I think it is also important to understand that if this is something that you're seeing, look at how people are reacting to this, and is mm -hmm. who is the butt of the joke? Is the idea of an elected official being gay the butt of the joke? Yeah. Um, and so like, that's, that's just like a random aside that is just mm -hmm. a note of like why you might see some queer folks on Twitter or other places on the internet, very much not liking content mm -hmm. like this. Yeah. Well, I think you raised some important points, including that there's still people out there that don't understand that gay and drag are not synonymous, transgender, the whole thing. Um, and perhaps, and yeah, two, two gay men, a gay couple behind this, this art, um, but that doesn't mean that it's a monolithic community and everybody has to love it. But it does get people talking. Quickly, tell people where they can find you, Benny. Uh, yeah, so I'm at Benjamin Carollo on Twitter, at Benny on Blue Sky. <laughs> Blue Sky. <laughs> if you're on there yet. Um, and then you can always catch my videos at TYT Breakdown on YouTube. There's sad news. Legend multi-talented, Terry Belafonte has passed away. Let's put the picture up for a mask. This hero of a man, legacy does not begin to describe the impact this man has had on society. Terry Belafonte, the dashing singer, the activist, and the actor who became an indispensable support of the civil rights movement. He was 96 years of age when he passed away, according to his publicist, Ken Sunshine. Let me give you some background history to how a person of influence, resources, and means can change the world without losing his soul and still making money. Belafonte died Tuesday. Tuesday morning of congestive heart failure. Belafonte was dubbed the king of Calypso after the groundbreaking success of his 1956 hit, the banana boat song, Deo. He also became a movie star after acting in the adaptation of the Broadway musical, Carmen Jones. Belafonte's biggest contributions actually took place off stage. Now, this is something I think all of us can take a significant amount of wisdom from how he was able to navigate a very racist societal construct in his personal life as well as in his professional career he navigated these channels with expert precision intentionally so he was a key strategist many people forget he was behind the fundraiser and he was a mediator for the civil rights movement, did many fundraisers. He continually risked his, his entertainment career 
and at least once his life for activism, he became a close friend of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who often retired to Belafonte's palace in New York. It was his New York apartment to talk strategy, to escape the pressures of leading the civil rights movement. A ferocious reader, this individual uh, with a burning disdain for injustice, Belafonte's political consciousness was shaped by the experience of growing up as an impoverished son of a poor Jamaican mother who worked as a domestic servant. I often responded to queries that ask, when as an artist did you decide to become an activist? He once said, my response to the question is that I was an activist long before I became an artist. They both service each other, but the activism is first. Let's go, let's go uh, down a journey. Let's provide some context to his activism. Um, he saw the civil rights movement as a global struggle, not just domestically. He was correct. He led a campaign against apartheid in South Africa. He befriended Nelson Mandela. He mobilized support for the fight against HIV AIDS and became a UNICEF goodwill ambassador. He also came up with the idea for recording the 1985 hit song, We Are the World, which assembled a constellation of pop and rock stars, including Bob Dylan, Michael Jackson, Bruce Springsteen, and more to raise money for famine relief in Africa. Look at this amazing picture. You know, a picture says a lot. He had a great relationship with Dr. King. He proved to be crucial. Belafonte proved to be crucial to the movement, utilizing his star power, his connections, and more importantly, his resources to help the civil rights movement. He raised money for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the organization that King co-founded and led. Belafonte also helped bail out activists who had been jailed during the civil rights campaigns and assisted with organizing the 1963 March on Washington. You see, he risked more than just his career. He put his very life on the line. In 1964, Belafonte and his friend, fellow actor Sidney Poitier, traveled to Mississippi to deliver a doctor's bag filled with $70,000 to support voter registration efforts. Belafonte says the pair were chased and shot at by the KKK, but eventually succeeded in hand delivering their money. The reason why they had to transport money that way is because the white owned banks would not allow them to wire that kind of money to sustain the civil rights movement. And so they had to travel with cash and they had to utilize cash payments in order to pay for things required inside of the movement. Belafonte provided a construct for us all to follow a design, a blueprint. While he never compromised his integrity, he was always reputable and provided wisdom and significant context when challenged on his civil rights affiliations. He did not go to NBC interviews and say, do not ask me about my relationship with Dr. King. As a matter of fact, he would say, make sure that's the first question you ask me. Integrity, significant wisdom, 
a man who cared deeply about society. While he will be missed as a man, his energy and spirit remains on this planet and inside of each and every one of you and me. Rest in peace, our prayers and our positive thoughts are with the family as they grieve this transition.